Upstream with Jim and John, father and son conversations about discipleship and culture in the Pacific Northwest. I'm John. And I'm Jim. Welcome to episode 134. We're going to talk about the boogeyman of culture. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk about culture and a Christian's place and perspective on it, like our view of culture and um, what we ought to do about culture. I think uh, most of us would agree culture is going to hell in a handbasket. Like, what's this world coming to? and the way the culture is moving. And uh, I actually have some very exciting news for you, some, um, I think, very inspiring uh, ways to think about this and how we can make a difference. I think I'm going to I have a spin on this. Okay. Because really what we're going to talk about, in my opinion, is a, a way to explain culture and in a really, really tangible way. Yes. A way I've a, never heard it before in my entire life. Yeah, it is kind of a metaphysical idea. Hard to get your arms around. We're going to make it crystal clear, super practical, which is and, why it might be so inspiring to me because I can get it now. Exactly. And we've talked a lot about culture. So if you think in another one, this one is especially practical. I'm a big fan of this one we're about to have. Yeah, me too. So if we bored you already, te- just stick around because I think you're going to like it. Before that, though, John, it is story or joke time, and you are up. So, I'm up. It's my story. Uh, I took a marketing class in college. That's not the point of the story. This is the prologue. I'm very theatrical, if you haven't noticed. I'm very dramatic. <laughs> this is the prologue. Give me some. Give me some ambiance. And and who is the who is the the main part of the character and story? The protagonist. Who's the protagonist in this story? Uh, me. But it could be this other guy. Anyway, I'll who's, get, the, who's the antagonist? The antagonist is corporate America. Ooh. So. I like it. So you need some ambiance. I need some ambiance. So I'm in marketing class. <laughs> oh, he's in marketing class. All right, that's enough ambiance. It wasn't that spooky. <laughs> we learned this thing, which most people who have ever run a business or worked even in a small business or in a lot of churches, you might have come across this idea that all marketing begins in the parking lot very common in the business it's world. very common idea and it's very smart yes and so it was the what he was teaching us in his marketing class was you go to marketing class you think i'm gonna learn how to advertise advertising is not marketing marketing encompasses advertising as well as almost everything about your business including your parking lot so one of the things you would say is everything communicates everything communicates great way to put it so this is only tangentially related but it came to me when i started talking the actual story is i needed a new office chair and I'll go a long ways to spend less money. And my mom (laughs) had a broken office chair. Mm -hmm. It was slowly sink. Many people have probably experienced this in the pneumatic office chairs. It could not contain your abilities. Nor my small mothers. Yes. So I don't think it's just my, just as you're sitting there, you would hear a little. Yeah. And you'd feel it. You'd jolt down and drop down quarter inch. So this had happened to me with an office chair many years ago. And I just so happened to find another office chair in the house that was not being used, and I commandeered that one instead. But when it happened, I went online to find out what I could do about such a thing, and there's this common practice of using PVC pipe to hold up your chair. You put it over the little air tube, and it, and it keeps the lid of the seat. It can't go down because it physically, hits, it's like yeah, it hits a, yeah, it hits a lock. So instead of replacing a gasket, stopping a leak, whatever, you just place a physical barrier. At the height that you want. So your chair is no longer adjustable, which for me didn't matter. I yeah, needed it at the okay. high setting anyway. Yeah. So I got, uh, I took my measurements and I needed four and a half inches of PVC pipe cut vertically bisected. I needed to cut directly you down the middle. slide it into the post. Right. So. Without taking the seat off. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so anyway, this is not as easy as I thought it would be. So <laughs> to, find, to find said PVC pipe. The PVC pipe is easy. Well, first I go to. A business locally that I won't name so I don't, you know, endanger any business. Because you wanted to support this I wanted to support this local business. And I asked if they could cut this PVC pipe for me. And they said no. And I didn't want to buy 10 feet of PVC pipe for my four inches needed of right. PVC pipe. So then I go to the big chain. I go to Home Depot. And uh, I run into this guy. He is wearing a camo baseball cap. He's got uh, ginger hair 
flowing out to his probably his shoulders, really wavy ginger hair. Mm. And uh, and he's an employee. He's an employee. And I'm looking. Ar- I'm 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 walking around. I find this guy who will lead me to the PVC pipe, a different guy. And then when I'm in the PVC area, I get this big, you know, tube, and I'm walking it over to back towards where I saw the other towards the wood section to ask someone there to cut it for me. And I run into this guy with the with the to, to the guy with the red with hair, the camel hat, and the camel hat. And he says, "Yes, I can cut this for you." And he leads me back to uh, the pipe area, and he. I guess the way he asked if I was military, which is funny. I said, no, he said I was holding the pipe like a flag bearer, oh. uh, which is kind of funny anyway. Yeah. So then he you could have said, well, I was in marching band. I, I carried the flag in marching band. <laughs> yeah, I could have. Uh, he <laughs> probably would have, didn't. he would have believed I was in the chair force or something. Probably just by looking at me. I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, then he finds another pipe for me. This one's only uh, a foot. He said, oh. oh, well, this will save you money. Yeah. So first, this is the first thing he does. First, he's he saves eager, you money. He's eager to take me over there. He saves me money by getting me this other piece of pipe. Then he's, I say, can you cut this for me? He says, for sure. And he gets out, you know, the little pipe cutter thing, cuts it to length for me, even though I have to, I bought the whole thing because it's only right. a foot. Then I ask him, is there any way I could get this thing cut down the middle? And he thinks, and he goes, follow me. And he leads me across <laughs> the shop into this employee's only nook. Really? They, yeah, they have tools and like used tools, like like obviously things they sell, but they sure. have them in there and they've been using them to you know do custom things. And so he uh, puts this uh, PVC pipe in a grip, a vice, a vice, and then saws vertically down the middle with a handsaw, and hands it to me. And uh, and it dawns on me while he's doing this that if I had bumped into the wrong person, if I bumped into an this employee happens, who yeah. exactly who. Uh, wasn't having a good day, feeling lazy, feeling frustrated, anything, then I don't get what I need. Mm-hmm. And I would have to find a way to cut this myself. I would have had to buy probably grips and a handsaw. It wouldn't be the hardest thing in the world to actually cut this myself, but I have to buy more tools. I have to solve the problem myself. Mm-hmm. And because I had one friendly employee, I now had an amazing experience at Home Depot, and I got exactly what I wanted because he took a little time out of his and day. for a safe, a smaller price because he got you the shorter piece. Exactly. So all this to say... Marketing includes employees, all of that. All yeah. that. And yeah. you can't, you know, if we're talking business, you can't consistently make that guy all the time. That guy's not always going to be there for everybody. That's impossible. Mm. You can create a culture where there are more of those guys and that maybe most of the time they help like that. But I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know if you could produce, reproduce that. But I told this guy, I should, he, he reached out for a handshake. That was the only deal. I was like, man, yeah. I shook his hand. I said, you are my hero. Did we just become best friends? Yeah. I said, no, get this. This is the last thing on the cake. I said, I said, bro, you're my hero. And he said, thank you for shopping with us. <laughs> I, I felt like I was in the presence and of he, like. And he took off running back to his post. Seriously, with yeah. like a cape or something. I was like, this guy needs to to run the store. Yeah, I don't know how much they pay you, but it's not enough. It's not enough. I was blown away. So uh, maybe by description alone, you know this guy. And if you do, tell him he's really, really did a good job. So this is your whole story. That's my whole story. It's just a guy who really crushed his job. Well, really what's, what's amazing is this speaks directly to our conversation today. And uh, we'll call that foreshadowing because we're going to circle back to it uh, later. So let's talk about the idea of culture and Christians. We decided when we were, you know, you and I have had these kind of conversations for years. We made the decision, what if we recorded these and let's start a podcast? Mm-hmm. We want to start a podcast? Well, what do we call this podcast? And we landed on upstream upstream. Why? Because there's a really cool salmon logo that we could whip to get whip up. <laughs> and, and because Christians will always find themselves feeling the pressure of the culture. Yes. And because going, we said because this we're is going upstream again, this is conversations about discipleship and culture in the Pacific Northwest. So, we know that if you're a Christ follower in the Pacific Northwest, you are going to feel the current of culture coming against you. Mm-hmm. You are, in fact, swimming upstream. You're spawning. And, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and triple fold, being in the Northwest, salmon are a big deal here. Yeah, they are. So it was just perfect. All yeah. that marketing class really paid off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it is a fact, we would say a biblical fact, uh, certainty, that if you're going to follow Jesus you will be swimming upstream to the culture. Yeah. And in fact, if you, this is one of your kind of self assessments. 
if you don't feel the pressure of the culture against you, you should reevaluate your faith because, you know, broad is the path that leads to destruction and many are they who find it and narrow is the way that leads to life and fewer they who find it. And, and friendship with the world is enmity, enmity with, God. with God. So uh, this is a real thing. I might not say, because it's depending on your culture, you might feel less pressure than other times. I might not say reevaluate your faith. Maybe just take stock of it. Ask yourself, why is that? Well, that's what I meant by reevaluate. I know, but I don't want you to think. Assess. You know, assess. Assess is a great word for that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, recently I've read a book, so we'll go ahead and recommend this book uh, by Andy Crouch. Um, I I shouldn't say that I'm recommending the book because I don't remember the title now. <laughs> uh, but it's a book about culture. So if you do a search on Andy Crouch culture, this book shows up and it is phenomenal. And it is where we got the I this received this definition of culture. So to kind of just frame the conversation, John, um, I know that there are there have been through the last two years times when I'm overwhelmed at uh, the volume of stupidity in our culture, the anti-Christness of our culture. And sometimes it can feel like it is a losing battle. Like this is, have you felt that? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because, you know, you've, my stance since I've been very young is that things don't change. And, you know, there's that famous, it was, it's a famous one, two punch where someone, it's a quote from like Aristotle and it says, you know, oh, kids these days do this, this, and this. And you go, yeah. And then it says, that was freaking 2,000 years ago. Right. So that, that's a famous gotcha. And I had heard that, you know, and I was like in high school. And I was like, yeah. So I was right. Things don't change. So it's it's tough to... To say these are the most dramatic days ever. Right. Yeah. But we have a lot of people um, who... So normally the people who might say, you know, kids these days when I was younger was different. Those people might be in their 60s, you know, or thereabouts. We have a lot of people in their 30s or 40s or 50s saying, I've never seen anything like this in my life. Mm -hmm. So that to me speaks of a more dramatic and a a very accelerated change, very, very quick change. Yeah. Uh, Because I do believe things change uh, in a smaller way, in in, in very nuanced ways or or less nuanced ways. But I more mean that the human condition is consistent, very painfully consistent. Depravity has been uh, on the table for a long time. You know, one of the examples I use is, you're only about 7% into the Bible before there's starting to be rules about sex with animals. <laughs> this thing fell off the rails really fast. Yeah. And so while, you know, depravity has peaks and valleys of volume or social acceptance or cultural um, uh, endorsement, uh, we've been sick and sinful for a long, long, long time. So that is true. Um, it, it, it does seem that there's a uniqueness in our lifetime, you know, I'm, I'm turning 60 in March. So I'm almost 60. I talk to people my age and older who say never in my lifetime, has there been a a season like this that felt so dramatic, so accelerated, um, and so negative, so dark, discouraging. It's tough because you know, there's lived experience and then there's historic knowledge. Right. So it's tough to like think of the uh, MLK civil rights protests sure. and like the Vietnam protests mm-hmm. and things like that and, and uh, Watergate and to think really never been time like this. Yeah, that's because, true. Because but that is that's 60 years ago. You know, that's before even your yeah. time really yeah. in a, it, as far as being a conscious adult. Well, and maybe I can hone this down because what uh, what because that's great clarity. You're right. There have been even 9-11 and there have been mm-hmm. these you know crazy times. Um, but I would say a rapid aggression towards Christianity. Yeah. It's sure. been a, it's been an accelerated deterioration of Christian values and an accelerated hostility towards Christianity in particular, or at the very least an accelerated decline in uh, measurable Christian statistics, yeah. such as yeah. church attendance, uh, uh, scripture reading, reported scripture reading. Yeah. 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 So, um, so what do we do about that and how, and, and what this, this Andy Crouch thing and this definition of culture we're going to use really helped me go from discouraged to incredibly empowered. Sure. And that's what we want to do is, uh, is kind of, um, uh, kind of articulate the scriptures call 
because Christians throughout history, from the book of Acts on, from the birth of the church on, Christians have been what you could call a creative minority. They have not been the majority position. It's not the, it's not the majority cultural position. It's not the politically powerful position. And it wasn't until Constantine made it the official religion, which, you know, embrace Christianity or we'll kill you, which uh, causes evangelism <laughs> he, he rates really to go really it. high. Yeah. yeah, he really understood the, the game. <laughs> yeah, he was for us. Yeah. You know, uh, He ruined a lot of things, and we still pay for that. But um, Christianity, true biblical discipleship Christianity, has always been a minority position. Mm-hmm. And I think we should get comfortable there, and it's actually a place of incredible opportunity. Well, and what you the word you used, because I feel like I immediately kind of um, uh, was at conflict with some of what you were saying. The word that you used that really spoke to me is the sense of hopelessness. Yeah, the sense of hopelessness with the greatest, or the greater culture. And I think that is it's funny with uh, because I think in many many countries and many cultures, it's obvious that biblical Christianity is in the minority. It's mm-hmm. ob- it, it is it makes sense. And when we you know are kind of. You know, when your money says in God we trust and when, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, when you grow up in a country that calls itself Christian, then you have to learn this where really it should be intuitive. It should it should make sense. But because of our specific country, you know, we've had the illusion of having uh, broadly embraced Christianity that the mass culture of our country should align with biblical Christianity. So then to realize that that is not the case and might be actually impossible, Mm -hmm. uh, or it feels that way, then then you have these things struggling like, well, how do we change that? How do I change the big culture? And, you know, what do I do? So that sense of hopelessness is is legitimate. Yeah. So uh, we have a whole episode on this particular thing I'm about to give you. Um, I, I don't remember how long ago. We probably should look that up. But um, about uh, how we can view culture. And historically, Christians have in, intersected culture in four ways. Um, and you can kind of tell the tra- the progression of time here. Mm-hmm. So the first was condemning culture. Like if you were a Christian, you didn't go to the movies, you didn't dance. Um, it's one of my favorite jokes um, is why do Christian couples, can they not, you know, make love standing up? Cause it could lead to dancing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, there were all these rules cause we wanted to condemn the culture. It was dangerous and it was dark and it was bad. Yeah. Well then it became critique culture and a guy named Francis Schaefer kind of led the way here with the, a film series called, I forget what it's called, but man, phenomenal thinker. And uh, Christians began to critique culture. You know, how should we think about the value of human life and mm. really critiquing. So then instead of showing you get into engagement, you get into, instead of yes. just blacklisting it, let's actually um, engage it and be critical. Right. And then that kind of gave way in my early Christian life to copying the culture. So you mm-hmm. take uh, hit songs and you change the lyrics and make them Christian <laughs> songs, and you start making your own Christian movies. But they're just as they're just like uh, other movies, but lots lot, way bad. You know, just bad acting and we had one, low budget. We had one. It was uh, instead of pour some sugar on me. Was that Rolling Stones? <laughs> no. What? Who is that? I don't uh, know. Anyway, we changed that to pour some spirit on me. Oh, in the name go. of God. Yeah. Yeah. In the name of God. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's pretty embarrassing some of the things we've done to copy culture. Uh, and, and you know, you you had this, churches started doing this. So um, your auditoriums got dark and you had intelligent lights and you had haze machines and you, and you had loud, loud music. And it was kind of this creating this uh, cultural vibe that was copying the culture. Sure. Uh, and then um, the, the last response was just to consume culture. It's like we've just given in and... Um, we just consume it, man. Assimilation. Yes, we've assimilated into it, and we just consume culture. We're consuming it at the same rates and the same quality as anybody. Yeah. And so uh, none of those are the are the biblical perspective toward culture, and we want to contend that there is a call to, you could either, two more C words, you could either cultivate culture or actually create it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what I want to talk about is our enormous opportunity to be culture creators. And um, this this is, you know, you, you know me, I, I'm boring. You? Yeah, I'm not a trendsetter. Um, my goal with my clothing is to be not noteworthy. Sure. So, you know, some people try to dress cool. Some people try to dress, um, 
like they spend a lot of money. Some people I have a good friend. He, he spends a lot of time trying to look homeless. Uh, it takes what? a lot of effort for him to look homeless. You, Purposefully. You know him, yes. And he's an no, artist. You, and, you say this, but he, there's no way he says, I want to look homeless. Well, people would ask him, uh, homeless people would ask him where he's staying. Like, and he would love that. He just loved that. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, my goal um, is to be culturally kind of invisible. I don't want to be noteworthy. Sure. Um, but, and I'm, and if I do try to, yeah, I feel like I'm the, you know, the goofball who tries to say something cool or do something cool. You know, it's just not, I'm not cool. Yeah. And the, uh, the hey guys, I'm gelling that guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so I don't view myself as a culture creator, but this definition of culture, and we're going to unload this right now and start talking about it. It's so empowering, and to me, it brings clarity to that's what we can do mm-hmm. when this cultural conversation. Sure. All right. So culture, uh, we tend to think of culture as a as a surreal. Uh, what's the word, John? Um, uh, metaphysical is that a right intangible intangible is a great word ethereal yes Uh, I gotta have one more Uh, (laughs) keep going I'll think of it and so it's this thing that you don't you don't know what it is you just know it when you encounter it Um, like for example every house has rules Mm -hmm. and they don't post the rules they probably don't even clearly define the rules but boy when you break one you know it (laughs) and that's culture I, I was at a and a, a church friend's house, so mm-hmm. not someone I had ever hung out with before. But it was after church, and they invited me over, and I said, "Shut up in the house." And you would have, man, you would have thought I I snapped the cat's <laughs> neck or something. It was like, it was, it was like you ever see Get Out? Yes, it was a little bit like that. Yeah, was, <laughs> yeah. So the unspoken rule. Yeah, in my home you could say "shut up." In this home you could not. Oh, and see at, at Evergreen. Um, I say shut up, and mm-hmm. when I got there, it was against the rules at ECS at the Christian school to say shut up. Oh, no. And so when I said it, all the school staff looked at me like, <gasps> and I realized I'd stepped on a cultural thing. I didn't know it. That's funny. So uh, culture is is a way of describing what ought to be. It's a sense of the way things could be or should be. And so here's the simple definition of culture. You create culture whenever you do something with what is. Hmm. So if you do something with time, when you do something with money, when you do something with your car, when you change your hair, when you clothes, when you put on your clothes, um, the way you use something, every time you do something with a physical thing or a non-physical thing, like I said, time. Yeah. You create culture. In other words, you express a sense of what could be in the world and probably what should be. But it's all action-based. Yes. Or at least uh, usage-based. That's how culture is created. And so think of some examples that come to the top of your head now, thinking of that definition. Well, down to the very tangible, I think of uh, um, truly, like families in in uh, in Mexico, it's, it's tortillas with every single meal, and you don't put, Lindsay told me about this when she got back from a mission trip to Mexico, you don't put the food in the tortilla. You have the tortilla with your food. And so you'll use it to like, so, you know, in the beans mm-hmm, as like a mm-hmm. little utensil or you'll, if you have utensil, you eat, eat some meat and, and, and then you take a bite of the tortilla, but you don't make a taco. So that is, what do you do with this tortilla on your plate? That mm-hmm. is culture. Okay. Uh, so those are, those are the very apparent things. Yeah. Thing, what you do with your hair. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, one thing, this might be a rabbit hole, but. Uh, uh, masculinity, even in the same country culture, in America's culture, looks very different between uh, black people and white people. Uh, a white masculine man would never use skincare products mm. because you just you're too. Or he wouldn't tell anybody. He or he, exactly, he would you know maybe take masculine pride in using the eighteen and one shampoo. <laughs> it's also like motor oil for your car yeah, and yeah. laundry detergent. And he would not use lotion, or he wouldn't tell his buddies to use lotion. A masculine black man has to use lotion, or else his skin gets ashy. Or mm-hmm. else, you know, he's, you can see the dead skin on his arms. It, lo- it looks, it doesn't look uh, uh, put together. So, a, a, it's even there. What do you do with, you know, what is what is manly for for each person? That yeah. changes in culture. Yes, and um, I think it may be a little too broad to say all white men, all masculine black men. 
But the point is yeah. the same. A certain person would feel masculine by not using products or would feel masculine because they want to use products because of what it does for them. I think but, regardless of how you feel, this is what I'm saying about prominent culture. Regardless of what you felt by yourself, if you thought, well, a manly man could use lotion, you would know that the Mike Ditka stereotypical <laughs> macho American man yeah. would not. Yeah. You, you would know that in your head. Yes. That, that's the prominent culture. Yeah. And so, um, so to use another example is conflict mm-hmm. in some, uh, houses. What do you do with conflict? Nothing. We do not speak of it. <laughs> we do not acknowledge it. <laughs> we let that elephant sit right there in the living room while we all enjoy a movie mm-hmm. and we don't talk about it. Other houses scream and yell about it and throw fits and, and it's immaturely handled. But what you do with your feelings, what you do with your offenses, what you do with your wounds, these are culture creating. Mm-hmm. That's a really powerful example because we grow up in homes where our parents have made the decision consciously or unconsciously how they're going to handle conflict. And now we're trained that this is how conflict ought to be handled. Mm. And so we learn so much of culture by just absorbing it, by being it's the fish, you know, what's water. Yeah. And, and that's how culture is created. And the culture is created simply by what we chose to do with what we have. Mm-hmm. I know a guy whose dad would not use straws because he said they were gay. <laughs> he said, you know, no straight man would ever use a straw. Now, why, why don't you just say, dad, your dad told my dad. I, I'm sitting there. I'm like 11 years old and I put a straw in my drink at a we're sitting somewhere. And he took that straw out and threw it across the room. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, straws are for women and, and gays. Which one are you? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I I didn't put another straw in my drink till I was in my 30s, maybe. You had to unlearn that culture or relearn that culture. Right. Or... right. Uh, yeah. So what's this doing for you so far, John? The I, This idea of what culture is and what does that, how does that help you in terms of the world we live in? So it brings it down to a really simple thing. So, you know, you think of, of culture that sense of hopelessness or that sense of uh, intangibility. Mm-hmm. Did I already use that one? Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be my third one. I no, you remember. did. You okay. did. Well, shoot. Never mind. That sense of intangibility. And uh, and it it seems hopeless. The, the fish and water um, culture change in, again, kind of back to a corporate model. We know how difficult that is. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, to change culture, you got to clean shop. You got to like bring in new people. Mm-hmm. So it, it's such a, uh, it's like a, it's just a monster you can't kill and people people don't really get it so so this brings it down again to um to actions to what do i do with this yeah and so when you first told me this i was like cuz i i'm always in always uh guarding against um simplicity uh, yeah, simplicity against things that are too reductive yeah and so i thought well things huh cuz i thought you meant just like tables what do i do with tables that's the culture <laughs> in my home but when you bring it to Anything, any time, any mm-hmm. conflict, any language, what do we do with these things? Uh, that to me, I've, I've followed it now in my head for a while. I've worked it over and I can't find an exception to that rule. So for me, if you look at all, if you, if it's actions based and you go, well, what culture do I want to create? You can think of this proactively right. where we here are big fans of proactive thought of yes. mindful thinking. So you could sit down and spend time to think, well, how do I create this culture? What mm-hmm. things would I have to, what things would I have to do or how would I have to handle these things to create this culture? Yeah. If I want a culture that handles conflict very well, uh, very health, healthily, nothing gets suppressed, nothing gets you know, blown out of proportion. What thing, how do I handle conflict to create that culture? Yeah. You can work through it like that, like a, like a problem, like a, yeah. a puzzle. I love it. And what the same is true like you think well what culture i want to create then how should i handle this another thing the way i found it helpful is this is my impulse but what culture does that create and what culture does that come from well i hadn't thought of that but that's another great question it's it's the same answer basically yeah thinking what does this create and where does it come from it creates the culture it comes from so yeah. it, it just uh, uh, it progenates the same thing yeah and i think uh, the beauty of this is it empowers me to be courageous. You know, we've talked about live not by lies and follow the truth wherever it takes you. This would be the same thing. Don't allow yourself to participate in creating bad culture. Mm. And so uh, you're in a moment and this thing's happening right in front of you. And if you engage as the group might expect you to, 
it's going to reinforce or create bad culture, refuse to do it. And conversely, sit there and go, what could I do right now that might change the culture in this room and have the courage to do that? Yeah. So this is the power of Jesus people in the culture, because the culture would say um, that if you enforce your morality on anybody, no matter what that morality is, that is an offensive act of hatred. And so, okay, that's the culture I live in. How do I navigate then uh, and create a different kind of culture than that? Christians ought to be asking, for example, historically, we've come down on um, hating the sinner rather than hating the sin, Mm -hmm. right? That's a reputation we have. Sure. Uh, And I'm sure we've had behaviors that have reinforced that sense that that's what Christians do. But we we have the power to create amazing culture. So I've got a list of examples that we'll go through here in just a minute of scenarios and opportunities to intentionally create culture. And um, I hope this is doing for you, for you who are listening, uh, what it's done for me, which is give me incredible inspiration to be a culture creator on purpose. Yeah. And to be aware of the self-awareness that I am creating culture. Uh, When somebody comes to your house and they visit, they pop into your home. Well, the cleanliness of your home is a culture-creating thing. The filthiness of your home is a culture-creating thing. The language you use with people in your home is a culture-creating thing. It's just about it's, it's the marketing conversation. Everything communicates. Mm-hmm. That employee you encountered at Home Depot created a culture there. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do a quick your uh, show-and-tell. Okay. And then we'll do our commercial break and and we'll finish out our conversation with some very specific ideas Mm -hmm. and some takeaways. I love it. Yeah. All right. So uh, my show and tell, John, is about a band that at the time of this recording, I've not seen them yet, but by the time this podcast is released, I will have. Mm -hmm. So I've been checking them out on YouTube. I'm super fired up. We're going to a concert at the uh, Neptune at the Neptune in Seattle. Some good friends of ours bought the tickets, invited us to go. We're super excited to go. This is a band of Russians <laughs> <laughs> who come from Russia and tour doing cover music of Chicago. Exclusively. No, they do some Earth, Wind, and Fire as well. But um, I think this the way I was told about it is Chicago band. Sure. And I love Chicago. I don't think I honestly don't think there's a Chicago song that I don't know every word to. Uh, that would be a challenge. I know I saw challenge. the look in your eyes. Okay, I'm, I won't. I'm I won't challenge audience. That. If you you know if you think I know a, I know a very niche Chicago sh- song. Well, now here's the thing. If you just said tell me the words of that song, I couldn't. But if you played the song, I could sing along with it without missing a beat. You get a thing, you know, Rocket Man, burning out your whatever that is. You know, yeah. there's. There's blurred things Versions like that. Of, Chicago has songs like that. They have a couple. So, uh, I but but uh, man, phenomenal music. They're bringing brass. They got all the singers. They got strings. Uh, the drummer looks incredible, which that's my favorite thing to watch. Mm-hmm. You haven't said their name yet. They are called Leonid and Friends, or Friends of Leonid. No, Leonid and Friends. Yeah, I keep getting this backwards. Leonid and Friends. L e o n i d. Leonid and Friends. Uh, Check them out. Do a little YouTube search. Um, one of their singers is this older guy who has his shirt unbuttoned to his belly button and a gold <laughs> chain, and I just love it. He's like, you know, Mr. Groovy, I'm still stuck in 1974. Yeah. Uh, but, man, it is so – I can't wait to uh, to be in that room and, and hear these guys. You, it sounds like a blast. You showed me some of the uh, some YouTube videos of them recording. Yeah. They seem like they have – they're living their absolute dream. They they're are living the yeah. best time. They're having a great time. They don't care what you think about how they look. Mm-hmm. Talk about culture creating. Yeah. You watch how they dress. They do not care uh, <laughs> what you think. I saw some video of them doing live shows. And you know how a lot of artists have in-ear um, uh, monitors. Yeah, yeah. And they're really, uh, they're cultured into your ear. They're kind of invisible. Sure. The, you know, a couple of their guys have giant headphones on their heads <laughs> on the stage in a live show because uh, they just don't care. That's I think you guys are going to have a really good time. But they, man, they are quality musicians. That's awesome. Yes, it's going to be fun. All right, we'll be right back. Upstream is supported by the faithful members of the Upstream team, listeners who give monthly through Patreon. 
This podcast is just one part of the Jim and John ministry. They also write weekly blogs, have published their first book, and are currently at work on more. Their desire is to produce transformational content as well as offer encouragement and coaching to others. The dream is to see a movement of people who are integrating the work of Jesus into their daily lives and who are joining him on his mission to redeem and restore all things. Check out their website at jimandjohn.com where you can learn more about the father-son duo and gain access to all they have to offer. If you would like to join the Upstream team, consider partnering with Jim and John on patreon.com slash jimandjohn. A link is also available on the homepage of their website. And remember, there's no H in John. Now let's join Jim and John for the home stretch of today's conversation. All right, welcome back. Uh, we just want to say thank you again for listening. Uh, you just heard the whole spiel, so we'll wait till the very end to, to give that to you again. But uh, bring us back in, Dad, for uh, uh, what is it? Practical ways to use this this way of viewing culture. Yeah, and the thing is, it applies everywhere because every time you do something with something that is, it's a culture creating decision. Mm-hmm. And that's the part where you're like, is that really true? And you you and sure enough, you see it everywhere. Yeah, so far I haven't found a. An exception. Yeah. So let me give you some ideas because uh, the thing I want you to think about is when you make a decision of what to do with something, um, imagine that you're making a statement about what should be. Hmm. This is what's made it really powerful for me, too. So let's talk about money. When you make decisions what to do with your money, you are making some statements about how it ought to be. Right. So tell me some things you do or feel or what do you do with money, John, that are culture-creating things? Boy, culture-creating things. Um, They're making statements. What statements are you making with your money? Let me see. Come on, man. You got a pile of these. I know. Well, we had a we did a whole. No, that was a T-7. I was going to say we did a whole episode <laughs> on it. That was a T-7. <laughs> you handle money in a way that says a person should not spend more money than they make. Yeah, there you go. And so, okay, so actions, what do I do physically with it? Right. So people, so people who spend every dollar they make plus use a credit card for more are making a statement so that this is that how you money should, ought to be Yes, done. you should yeah. be able to have everything you want even if you can't afford it. Yeah, I get you. And so a culture-creating thing by not doing that is saying no. Uh, people have a responsibility with money, and money is a tool, and money should be used wisely, and having cash rather than toys is a better value. It's mm-hmm. a better uh, decision. And then as far as faith, you know, is it in what I doing with this, does it show stewardship? Am I saying that I ought to every, everybody ought to steward their money this way. Another way to look at that with all of these examples will be the same. If everybody in the world treated the money the way you do, what would happen? What would happen? Would the world be better off economically or worse off? Yeah. Uh, that's another way to look at that. And you think of if every Christian treated money the way you do, would they be better witnesses for Christ or worse? Yeah, but the world look at Christians and go, man, they got something. They got some something right. Yeah, yeah. So um, again, th- this is empowering because then, as you start, you, you're walking through the mall, or if you're like me, you, you want another motorcycle, a different <laughs> motorcycle. Uh, you sit there and go, well, is that what am I? Is that a statement I want to make that yeah. that you should be able to buy any motorcycle you want whenever you want it? Is that the way the world should be? Yeah, give me one more for this. Okay. What about um, friends? How you treat your friends? Yeah. You uh, you got, you've made plans two weeks ago. This happens to a lot of introverts, including myself. You're fired up. And you're like, man, let's do hangout in two weeks. We're going to go see Leonid and Friends. We're going to go see Leonid and Friends and Neptune. Mm-hmm. I don't care if it's an all-nighter. Yeah. And I it's just, Sunday night. I don't care. I got to go to work on Monday. I screw work. It's an hour and a half commute. Yeah. yeah. Then Sunday rolls around, you're in your sweatpants, uh, you got freaking a show to binge. Seahawks game isn't over and it's in the fourth quarter and the game is tied, but you got to leave, you got to go. And so you cancel on your friend. You know, that's your time. Mm-hmm. That's what are you, You're saying that all my friendships, my comforts come before my friendships and that's how it should be. Yep. And, and my word doesn't have to be kept. I yep. can change my mind. Yep. I want a world where I don't have to uh, keep my obligations or my commitments. Or my uh, uh, my relaxation, my you're prioritizing the self. Everyone should prioritize themselves in the, in how they spend their time. 
And that's a great example because we live in a culture right now where the self is king. Mm-hmm. I can say I, I identify as this. And there doesn't have to be a tangible connected dot reason for that. The fact that I feel it is all that I need. Yeah, because of yourself. Because the self is king. Poverty, homelessness, um, people, um, uh, you know, injustice. If you, Mm -hmm. and so this one was really convicting as I thought about us having this conversation. Um, What culture am I creating by the way I engage poverty? Yeah. And what culture am I creating by the way I engage or disengage or avoid homelessness? How am I, how am I creating culture about racial inequity or social disadvantage um, or the use of power? I think mm-hmm. that's another great example. When you're a parent, you have power on your workplace. If you have people who report to you, you have power. If you have some money, you have some power. How do I use power? And, and, the way I use power is making a statement about the sense of things. This is how power ought to be used. Right. And so uh, we're going to beat this dead horse for, for just, a, <laughs> you know, two more minutes. I think the, the thing that's so eye-opening about this whole thing to me is that I can't, I can't not create culture. Right. Everything I do is culture stating. It's culture creating. And that's why culture comes uh, uh, comes about seemingly uh, chaotically, mm-hmm. seemingly randomly. You think, uh, well, I don't know how to change culture because I don't know what, you know, it just happens to be there because everything yeah. you do creates. Who did that? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Who decided the world should be this way? What happened? Man, you have no idea how many times I asked myself that in college, <laughs> 3 a.m., cramming for a final. I go, Who did this to me? Mm hmm. That's yeah, the culture I created with how I spend my time. Well, yeah. I the time. And you, and I think about this, you know, they keep playing around with, uh, education models for kids. Um, who decided what time school ought to start and end. Yeah. And even though there have been some significant studies about when children learn the best, how they could retain the most classroom knowledge, what time of day those schools should be, or should they be year round and have breaks throughout the year? The truth is we don't care about that. Because it's the way things are. It's the way things are, or it's more convenient for other things if school goes this way. Mm-hmm. So, but so that's a cultural decision. We know that if you drive fifty-five miles an hour, that there will be this many deaths, and if we increase the speed limit to seventy, there will be this many deaths. And we have decided that speed on the highways and getting across the country faster is it's worth it. is worth those many lives. Yeah. What I love about uh, that one bones me out, uh, just the calculation of it. What I love about the one specifically about how things should be every time you make those calls mm-hmm. is it exposes the there's a word for it that I'm blanking on. But uh, uh, basically the gap between your professed beliefs and your your in practice beliefs. So uh, everyone has the has that gap. Uh, I feel like it's becoming with with, you know, a lot more of the opinion expression and uh and a lot of the a lot of the 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 online culture again back to culture Mm -hmm. of uh this is not right i must you know i say this and and you must have certain stances or you must have a stance uh all of these things don't seem to allow for that gap between your professed beliefs and your non-professed beliefs so or your professed beliefs and what you do in action so obviously you know uh we aspire, especially as Christians, I think most people aspire, but as Christians aspire to the utmost that that gap would basically disappear between right. what you say and what you do. Uh, so at the very least, again, this is another kind of... Uh, that there would be congruence. Yeah, this is a measurement mm-hmm. of, of am I really you know, doing what I say should be done, ought to be done? And in that kind of practical way, and when you're thinking of creating culture, if you do what you say you ought to be done, Mm -hmm. then you're probably going to get the culture that you want anyways. You know? Yeah. I love that because it exposes your selfishness. Exactly. Exactly. Because I, because if I make a selfish decision and then I ask myself, do I think that's the way the world ought to be? No, but I want it to be that way right now. And I think it cracks down on exceptions. You think, well, normally no, but maybe this one time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But if you, if you have this rule where everything that I do with a thing I should do in the way I think everyone ought to do it. Yeah. I think in the way it ought to be done. And then you kind of don't give yourself that exception. Yeah. 
So when we think about the body of Christ, and we'll finish with this and then get your takeaway. When you think about the church having a voice in the culture, having making cultural impact, what we do, the decisions we make actually create culture that then uh, is juxtaposed no. to the to the world's <laughs> culture. It is it is a clear contrast. So imagine a culture where there is no poor among us because we take care of one another's needs. Imagine mm-hmm. a culture where we love and forgive one another. Imagine a culture where we sacrifice for the sake of one another. Imagine a culture where we refuse to hurt one another or to uh, hold on to a bitterness with one another. Imagine a culture, you, you can go on and on and on, and what happened you, when you read the book of Acts, you see this sh- stark difference of a culture, and it, and it made the rest of the culture jealous. They were, they were a little weirded out by it. They mm-hmm. were not totally comfortable with it, but they were drawn to it like bugs to a light, and uh, it was irresistible culture, Yeah, and we can do that. And we each contribute to or away from that every single day. Yeah. What's your yeah. takeaway? Uh, so my takeaway is there's this solves for me the mystery of a few of the um, proper nouns, proper phrases of Scripture. So a lot of them that you see and you go, I don't always exactly know what you're talking about. Kingdom of God is one of those. Mm. Kingdom of God, Jesus never strictly says exactly what he's talking about. It's a, it's more of a, of a, of a feeling. Yeah. And so one of those is the aroma of Christ, you know, and they, that's broken down a little more than other things in the new Testament, uh, writings, uh, after the gospels, but it's still kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just a, it's kind of just a vibe. I get the vibe of Christ from you. You could probably say that. Right. You could. And yeah. so this is like the, uh, this is in action. This is on paper and, um, missionally, strategically this is the the how and what of the aroma of christ this mm-hmm. is what people when they are near you and they sense something different like there's this i'm i'm an untrained musician and i was shocked when i started playing with other musicians how things you just sense them i just oh. and there boom and you're all together and you just knew it uh, sometimes in the cadence of a conversation, you'll both be quiet and then you both say something at the same time mm-hmm. because you just, you could just, it's the cadence of the conversation. There's just things that you sense and you don't really know what. And so the more you can break that down, if I was a trained musician, not only do I have the intuition of someone who plays an instrument, but I actually know the guts of that. I actually know what's going on there when yeah. everyone knows that because I know time signatures and I know what right. we're doing right. and I have experience with these people. Oh man. Then you're on another plane. Yeah. So it's not that the intuition is bad or that it's broken, uh, but if you know uh, the aroma of Christ, how to reproduce that or what even that is, then your you know knowledge in this case is, is very much uh, power and not to be manipulated. It sounds it sounds icky to engineer that, but more I mean this is an understanding. Yeah, you're incarnating instead of engineering it. You're, yeah, you're incarnating the culture that Christ calls us to. Right, you're not manipulating. And when you think of the aroma of Christ, <clears throat> I, 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 there was a time in my life when I was so overwhelmed at all the things I should do, mm. and I realized um, instead of focusing on everything you should do, just stop doing the things you shouldn't do. So, for example, <laughs> um, I need to, I need to say the right thing to this person. Well, how about first of all, just stop talking. <laughs> you know, don't say the wrong thing. Yeah. It's a lot easier for me to to not say the wrong thing than it is to know the right thing. To say. I had, it's funny. I had not helpful this conversation. I had the exact opposite journey <laughs> going from, man, I cannot quit doing the wrong things. Like, well, what if you do the right thing? Really? Yeah. You had the exact, the opposite, exact opposite. That's yeah. funny. Cause to me, it's, it's the, the new law of Jesus is proactive, not inactive. It is. And that's, I love that, that language. When you're talking about the aroma of Christ, my redneck Bubba interpretation is, well, if you can't create the aroma of Christ, at least don't fart in it. <laughs> <laughs> and so upstream with Bubba and John. Yeah. So so when you're when you're thinking about you've had somebody hurt you or you mm. have this impulse that you know is not godly, you're instead of thinking, How do I create great culture, I could just say, How do I not contaminate the culture of Jesus? Yeah. And so I might withhold an action um, or I might take a different action 
But all of that is helpful for me to think about the cultural statement that the action I'm going to take makes. And and here's what's interesting is because all things of Christ are subtle mm-hmm. and because most of the ways that they do that subvert culture in ways that are subtle. Yeah. Uh, not everyone's going to notice the aroma of Christ. Right. So especially when it comes to silence, so much of our call of Christians is just to remain silent. Yep. It's not to, you know, not in, in a, in a way where you don't speak the truth or whatever, but, uh, I think of, you know, say, uh, you are going through a breakup or a divorce. Um, it's publicly known among your friends. It's not something you don't put it on your Facebook mm-hmm. profile. And mm-hmm. well, you probably do, but you don't say I'm Hey guys, I'm going through a divorce, but people know it. And so if you uh, are like on Facebook bashing this person, mm-hmm. people will notice that. That yeah. That is uh, farting in the aroma. It is. <laughs> right. It is. The actual aroma of Christ would be to say nothing. So someone might not notice that you're saying nothing mm-hmm. because it doesn't come. They're busy. They got stuff going on. There's other stuff on that feed. They would notice you freaking out. They might not notice you saying nothing. Yeah. So it's, it's not as, you know, it's not as if people are going to go, hey, man, I smell that. You're really crushing it. Right. It's just, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. It's about conduct. I'm I'm shocked how many Christians feel like it's totally appropriate to use hateful mm. descriptions about somebody they disagree with. Yeah. To attack a person rather than to attack a position or a thought pattern. And even if they're, well, especially if they're uh, famous, the large, the president, yeah. people think they can say whatever they want about the president. Because he's an object. He's, yeah. he's back to your objectifying things. To, to hate them, you have to objectify them. And those people who oftentimes have had... Uh, strong words people said whatever they wanted to say about the last president but they can say whatever they want to say about this president right yeah Yeah. all right hey man we are really grateful that you listened and stuck through this conversation with us we'd love to hear uh anything any ahas you had um or takeaways that you have from the episode so you can email us at info at jim and john dot com no Mm -hmm. h in the john you can uh message us on instagram jim and john yep um, you can either we do a weekly post there for each episode. You can comment on that or DM us, whichever works for you. Yeah, and we're just grateful. So thanks for listening. Uh, pick your favorite episode, pass it on to a friend. That would be one great thing you could do for us. Uh, give us a customer review or a rating on on whatever platform you listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, rate the podcast, thumbs up, give a rating, whatever. That's all helpful stuff for us. We really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for listening. We will see you next week. 